welcome to The Interlocutor with me, Anthony and Aksaguru. Today, I am joined by Stacey Pitsleides. Stacey is a lecturer in design at the Creative Professions and Digital Arts Department, University of Greenwich. Her research considers how technology and design shift our understanding of death and bereavement. As part of this research, she's curated events for public engagement that question legacy and aesthetics. These include Love After Death for Nesta's Future Fest and Material Legacies for the Stephen Lawrence Gallery. In addition to this, she's on the Standing Committee for the Death Online Research Symposium and, and has been the co-facilitator of these of three unconference events discussing issues of death and digitality. Stacey, how are you? Very well. Thank you very much for inviting me onto your podcast. No worries, no worries. Thanks for accepting the uh, invitation. <laughs> um, so I think the first thing would be really cool to talk about is just kind of looking at this idea of the digital self versus the biological self and, and how they fare. So um, for me, because I've been interested in this since around 2008, I've seen a real shift between people thinking in the past quite a lot about a separation between kind of the digital stuff that we place online and what identity means online as opposed to the everyday life. Whereas as we move further and further into the future, I've seen a much more uh, united understanding of ourselves being both physical and digital and kind of moving between those mediums between you know Instagramming, writing a text, meeting a friend, talking and the kind of more interwovenness mm. between those different environments. How do you think that how do you think that the online age, the digital age uh, kind of acts as a medium in the ways in which we curate our lives and the different personas that we create for ourselves? Yeah, I think it um, it's kind of two-part. In one way, it allows us to place things and to document ourselves more fully than has ever been possible before. Because, you know, in the past, we used to perhaps inherit a suitcase full of photographs mm. or a collection of diaries at best. Whereas now we might inherit, you know, tens of thousands of tweets, you know, thousands of emails, all that kind of content that we're building, which is a really rich kind of resource that helps us to understand who we are. But at the same time, that curation in the sense that what does that stuff mean and what is the context of that data is sometimes a little bit missing. Right. And so I think people today need to think about what it actually means to put things online and you know what is the future of that data. Mm. And I guess one of the things that I often think about, particularly being uh, somebody who uses social media quite a lot, is and it's something I've I've discussed with various guests on on the series before. Is uh, it's this idea that we become quite narcissistic, and and it's, it's it leads us. It has this propensity to want to to only we create this kind of smoke and mirrors thing where mm -hmm. we only show the very best of our lives, and we mm -hmm. kind of miss out. I don't know, days where we're, we're having bad days, times where mm -hmm. we're not exactly feeling great or we're not looking great or we haven't actually achieved what we wanted to achieve. Yeah, I think it's it's in some ways it's kind of two parts. So, yes, on the one side, we have a specific kind of message that we're projecting online. I mean, it depends on the kind of identity that you create, if it's more professional, if it's more personal. On different platforms, we present different identities. But I think the questions of narcissism are quite interesting in the sense that, for me, it's it's less about the kind of action now, so what society is doing right now, and more about the future. So when we look back historically on today's society, what will we see? What kind of society have we 
created and what kind of artifacts, digital and physical, will we be leaving behind for future archaeologists or digital heritage people to kind of engage with? Is there is there the possibility that when that when we die in fifty, you know, hundred years time, whatever it might be, that schools and universities and colleges are going to kind of collect? The, the tweets and the, and the mm. Facebook posts of various public figures who are alive mm-hmm. now and use them as a way of teaching and, and sourcing, using them as a resource base for for subjects. Yeah, I think that's uh, incredibly likely. I think it depends on how digital technology shifts and depends how archiving tools shift. But the Library of Congress is already archiving the whole of Twitter. Right. So we already have that kind of element of archiving going on in the backdrop where even regardless of whether we're actually famous or not famous, that data is being kept um, in the same way that we have the, um, you know, machines which can go back in time in the Internet and, you know, look at websites, how they looked in the 80s or 90s. And that already is being used as a tool for research to say, you know, oh, my God, look at how Yahoo looked in 95. Mm. And it is incredibly interesting in the same way that a relic of an ancient civilization or something is interesting for us today. So I think, yeah, we have to be careful that because digital stuff is both um, completely intangible and also both persistent and fragile so you know firstly it can be uh, preserved because it it kind of sits online and it doesn't have a physical vulnerability Mm. but at the same time is fragile because of the fact that it can go out of format so in the few years time will we be able to play floppy disks will we be able to access pdfs from a really old pdf reader so those kind of questions need to be taken into account if we're not to lose a lot of this rich heritage that we're actually creating yeah what happens i mean i'm sure there's there's people that know but uh, you know even myself i i wasn't too sure what does happen to our facebook profiles and our twitter accounts when we do when we do die um, it depends on the platform. I think um, Twitter hasn't addressed this as much as perhaps Facebook has, potentially because of the need. So in Facebook, because of the way we use it and the fact that we have friends and networks, people do die. And as many people will be aware, their profiles stay there online, stay in the Facebook. And um, actually, um, before t- 2010, Facebook had no, no way of dealing with that you know, that person would continue, they would have a birthday every year. And in order to get rid of that profile, you would have had to scan in a death certificate and send it to each social network if you wanted to close down that account. Since then, um, in 2010, Facebook introduced the memorial mode, which allowed people to place that, um, that account as a memorial. And then more recently, in 2015, they've added this opportunity to appoint a, an heir which would be organizing that profile okay, for so you they, they act as the admin yeah right and 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 what's your from an academic perspective what's your interest in in this whole subject so as an academic i don't see my role so much as being just an observer of these things as a designer as someone i want to be integrated into these systems and i want to use the skills that i have to engage with communities to talk to people and to help people think about the digital world you know as we're moving through it so i think um design has a really powerful potential to think through these systems because social media in general and the internet was not designed with death in mind and often the kind of words like forever get branded around quite a lot that people think we store our data online forever 
and yet that's that's really a fallacy and i think you know through design we can think about what the what these systems might be if the sensitivities and the ethics around death and dying was taken into consideration in more more depth absolutely what could, could you talk a little bit about the exhibitions that you've curated uh, around this theme so um, the first one is that was the Love After Death exhibition at Future Fest, and Future Fest is quite a kind of buzzy crowd in London. So you've got people from the tech industry, people from the creative industries. Right. It's a fairly young audience, and it's about visioning ten to thirty years in the future. So we set up these kind of death yurts in the middle of Future Fest, and everybody else is kind of engaging with the future as kind of this shiny thing. And we were really interested in kind of breaking that down and saying, well, actually, you know, the future might be really textural, and the future is is not only about you know automated cars and you know other kinds of buzzy topics. It's also about what happens to to us when we die and what kind of new practices around death and dying might exist. So we gave people 15-minute consultations to build a last will and testament for the future. And it in, included in that were new technologies, like if they wanted digital memorial tattoos, which would, for example, have a symbol that was relevant to the couple and would bloom in certain locations, mm. or if they wanted their DNA spliced with a tree so they could be grown in a significant place and be reunited with nature. So we were really trying to push people to think about... Um, the range of options available and how technology, when you begin to integrate it with death, can create meaningful ways of saying goodbye to people and meaningful ways of us continuing. Right. Maybe not literally, but through. Yeah. So there is an element of, of there is a, a coping mechanism within all this as well, which I found very interesting. I know that we we spoke at the South Bank at the uh, Believe and Beyond Festival, and, and there was a really interesting panel there, and we discussed you know the things that we're talking about here. Um, one of the things that I was interested in that came up was was the idea that we don't we don't teach people, especially young people from a young age, how to deal with dying and how mm -hmm. to deal with loss. The education system is very fixated on trying to inculcate us when it comes to physics and chemistry, but how do you deal with the existential issues that we're all at some point going to have to face? Mm. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because a lot of young people do have to deal with death and loss, and the way that we integrate that into the education system is incredibly important. And I think sex education has come a long way, and the death education needs to also push forward and try and think about well what are the lessons that these young people need to learn and mm. where would that fit in a curriculum I'm not sure because I don't have that background in primary education but I think it is something that um, when you give people an opportunity to talk about actually they respond most people respond quite well to it and as I said, it, with the Future Fest thing, we, we had a really strong reaction from people. Our booths were sold out for the two days that we were there. And, you know, we had a really, a lot of conversations with, you know, younger people, not, not school-age people, but younger people yeah. about what it might mean to die. And and what are their kind of thoughts on... The, I mean, what, did they have... Were they coming up to you with questions? Did they have thoughts on, on the matter? Yeah, no, I think I think it was it started off as curiosity. Right. So they were like, "What's this kind of death thing going mm. on at Future Fest, which is meant to be this buzzy tech festival?" Um, and then as they came and they did the experience, they came out and they were like, "Oh my god, it was fascinating! I didn't know that you could do all these things. I didn't know there were all these options." And they came out with a physical document mm. which they listed their preferences of what they would like to do in the future. 
and they were really interested in some people actually thought it was a real mm. a real thing that they'd done and we had to explain to them actually no this is this is an experience it's a speculative thing and not all these products actually exist a lot of them are in R&D or in these kind of areas but i think what what i've learned from the past since 2008 since when i started looking into this area is that the more i talk about it the more people want to talk to me and give me their stories right yeah i mean it's that, that we still live it in in a time where death has that cultural taboo you know we're still not sure one how to talk about it mm. two how to interact with people who are <laughs> suffering bereavements and and whatever else i think that that's really kind of a key factor is that as much as we talk about life and the ways in which we can enhance our quality of life we should also be discussing death mm -hmm. and how to deal with obviously somebody dying and maybe platforms like this and, and ideas and art is kind of a, a way in to mm. talking about and addressing these things in a more sensitive but also in a kind of more imaginative and original way as well yeah for me it's really important to challenge some of those traditional aesthetics and certainly with the new exhibition the material legacies exhibition i worked really long term for a period of four years with the Hospice of St. Francis and worked with uh, bereaved clients there for a period of two years where we actually collaborated very intensively in a deep way on building some kind of material understanding of the person they'd lost right. and making things together in order to exhibit them in this exhibition. And the interesting thing about it was that over the time we evolved together and the collaboration was really on the same level where each of us was contributing to what we were making in order to honor the person that they'd lost mm. and that presenting those works to the world in some way for them was also a way of um, helping other people to go through this and helping inform people about what the process of bereavement actually feels like and w these kind of experiences in these room show that it's not only about being sad and it's not only about um a kind of that kind of um depth of bereavement and grief but it's also about a continuous understanding of who that person was and getting to know someone in death in some ways more than you might have done in life mm. and i guess that's that's a really important thing as well is, is to consider that death doesn't ever really end a relationship it mm -hmm. just changes the dynamic of the relationship um, and obviously mediums like this really help to sustain that and for people who think oh I'm never going to see that person again mm. to be able to sustain some kind of communicative element mm. I guess is a very important part of the coping process yeah I think it, it also pushes against some of the traditional understandings of bereavement so a lot of people still feel like they have to let that person go mm. And that let that person go, that language comes from a Freudian kind of perspective on bereavement, which is about detachment, about the fact that if you want to go on and create new relationships, you have to let go of old relationships. But a lot of the new literature and a lot of new research into this area is actually saying that it can be really beneficial to keep those relationships going because we use those people as ancestors, right. as guidance as um, in, in some senses taking a less Western perspective on death and really thinking about what those people mean to us. So for example, if I'm walking down the street and I'm in a situation and I meet someone and I think, oh, what would this person have done in this situation? That's a part of keeping that relationship going and yeah. 
seeing what their new role in my life is. What are your thoughts on the idea of medical intervention and the ways in which we use medicine to, uh, I guess, preserve life and draw out people's lives? Obviously, we're living a lot longer than what we ever have done before due to technology. But do you think that there is a point where we have to say, I guess this is a moral question where where you turn around and say this person should have died 15 years ago or 10 years ago, but their quality of life Mm. has not actually improved. In fact, it might have deteriorated, although they're still alive. Yeah, this was a question that we we talked about a lot, both at the South Bank Centre and we talked about it a bit on Wednesday. We had a designing death panel where we had some experts from the hospice industry, the funeral industry and some academics discussing this. And there are... It's a really complex bunch of ethics Mm. that you get into at that point because the question is, firstly, you know, what is the choice that you make when you extend life through technology? Is the are you putting a person to into a place where they can no longer make that decision? And have they set up any parameters for what they would want? And also, in terms of that extension, what about the family around them? And how does that change that kind of dynamic and relationship with someone who dies over a period of, you know, 8, 10, 20, however many years? So uh, there are questions around um, dignity and around existence. And I think these... um, these link into notions of what people think of as a good death. Yeah. So, you know, a good death perhaps being something that's painless, yeah. perhaps being something that is um, quick, mm. perhaps being something which is controlled. Um, and I think there is a question of what that, what kind of existential experiences we might miss through trying to actively control um every aspect of this that's not to say we should die in pain and that's not to say we should not prolong life or that we should not choose when to prolong life but it's just that we need to think about what the actual impact of those things is yeah and also i one of the things that i i I often consider is who are we keeping that person alive for if their quality of life has deteriorated to a point where you're off, you're thinking, you know, they're just sitting in the chair and the, obviously the more able, the younger are the people who are now giving them the medication. Mm. I mean, I think of my grandma would be a prime example and the fact that she's completely dependent on everyone else to make sure that she stays alive. I often wonder, is it a selfish act to keep mm. that person alive just for the sake of those who are younger or more able-bodied the problem is that once you have the technology you put yourself in a position or your loved ones in a position where they have to make a choice so in the past perhaps people people just died you know if you were unable to prevent it if medicine was unable to prevent it you just slipped away into the night but nowadays we more and more have an active choice in it and it's very difficult to make that choice to say actually I'm willing to let that person go without having that twinge of saying I'm taking away that the last of that person's life or is this really what that person wants if they haven't provided that indication Mm. before so again it's it's about the wills and the legacy and this idea of us being prepared for what we actually want in those situations I mean many people nowadays 
that are a bit older have tattoos saying do not resuscitate across the chest because they're so keen that they don't want that to, that to be the situation for them that they don't want to live as a as a kind of cyborg connected to a machine yeah. without much other capacity yeah. and i guess what you're talking about what you said about control the idea of a good death being control and ultimately that autonomy of mm. the individual being in control as opposed to having to be at the whims of somebody else mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on euthanasia i'll tell you i i really believe in choice mm. i think it's really important that people have the choice of what to do with their lives and I think that the questions with euthanasia that I always have are what kind of safeguards and how would that system be implemented in an ethical way because it it is a system that um, that has a lot of challenges and I think um, I think that if we can die in the homes and if we can um, in in very specific cases have an option to not prolong further and not be in pain if that is people's choice i think it is important that we push towards a place where people can make those choices um but i think it would have to be quite specialized situations and not not for everybody yeah and obviously i guess our perceptions and, and our views on death differ culturally as mm. well this is another thing that i mean obviously the japanese have always had there's in, in asia predominantly there's always been there's a very different view on not just death but also suicide depending mm. on religions you know in some re religions particularly the abrahamic religions would view suicide as a sin whereas other maybe more existential religions would view it as, as something honorable mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on uh on the cultural distinctions between yeah life i mean and death. i think there the cultural distinctions are are very interesting and i think that in the past there has always been a push as i said before towards a more western unification of what um most topics are and actually if we can start to understand some of those traditions from other cultures they might teach us or they not might they do mm. they teach us a lot about other ways of living with the dead because as you say in, in Japan and other places um, people do live side by side in inverted commas with their dead loved ones and you know and are able to access those ancestors and the question is how that constructs culture and I think that it's important not to lose that diversity and not to not to kind of bring one unified understanding of it. it yeah, yeah it's yeah. not it's, that's not the goal and actually when you look into act the way that people actually understand it you will find a lot of diversity on an individual level too yeah, sure. so it's not only on the cultural level where there is maybe some agreement but it's actually on the individual level and that individual relationship that constructs how we view death and dying and i think the more diversity we have actually the better how has how has science changed our um our method or our mode of, 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 of grief and bereavement? How, how, how is science, the fact that maybe in particularly in England, that religion has less of a weight and obviously the things that the philosophies and the principles that come with religion and the idea of paradise once somebody dies to maybe the more agnostic and the more atheist groups of people, how do they now 
deal with death is it just this absolutist right there's nothing after this or have we created a new way maybe through shrines or maybe through mm. creating memorials for people famous people family whoever it might be of dealing with that yeah i think that um in the uk now um the last one of the last censuses they just passed over the 50 percent mark of people classified as non-religious right so the UK is a really interesting um, ground for many unique interpretations of death and dying, both based on the cultural diversity, but also based on this kind of non-religious label. Now, the people who are non-religious doesn't mean that they're secular, so they may still obtain or have forms of spirituality. And I really believe that kind of art and design have a potential to step in as new kinds of ritual makers mm. within that kind of area and to find new forms of meaning and certainly the growth of um, non-religious celebrants or humanist celebrants within the UK uh, for example my colleague who was talking yesterday Louise Winter from Poetic Endings um, really work with people to n construct the story of that person and build a funeral around that that is really meaningful and you know has who that person was at the heart of it rather than a kind of um, overarching religious yeah. um, goal or um, or mode that pushes that is pushed across a kind of funeral or something else. Mm. And I think yeah, that, I mean, f when I when I think about my friends and I think about people that are close to me and, and things like this, I often wonder on a kind of more morbid note. But when you actually we've been talking about death for about half an hour now, so you can't really get more morbid. Um, when you think about people dying, <laughs> you, you think about okay, my parents dealt with death in a very particular way but mm. generationally the way in which we deal with loss that is obviously determined and being informed by a lot of the technology mm -hmm. that we're seeing I remember when David Bowie passed and when Prince passed the way that Facebook almost became like a graveyard essentially you all you saw was just these epitaphs and you saw things people just posting you know old songs and really beautiful photographs of these icons how is that going to impact the next generation and how they deal with death? Yeah, I think it, it's it's really important because um, for us, as you say, it's it, it's come about for our generation where there has been a lot of significant figures from perhaps our youth, as we're kind of similar ages in mm. a way, that, um, that have passed away more recently and that that has led to a huge visual vocabulary of people trying to embed who that person was. For me, um, the death of Terry Pratchett in 2015 was really significant. And I remember that they, they kept his Twitter account going and um, wrote a few tw last tweets of him going off and joining death. Mm. And that was quite interesting because there's this playfulness that is based on his humor yeah. that people have been engaging with. And another example of that is that somebody set up on change.org so change.org being the petitioning platform that people use to petition government about, you know, the rights of the bees or yeah. the, you know... We don't want Trump in our country. Exactly, yeah. exactly, this kind of thing. And they set up a petition to petition death to reinstate Terry Pratchett. <laughs> and so people using that kind of humour yeah. and kind of online platforms to create really meaningful memorials where 35,000 people nearly signed up to petition death. Wow, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> th th there is, uh, at the South Bank, there was this common thread of, of how humour is, is often used during times of, mm. of 
grief and whatever it might be to try and to try and cope with somebody passing away is that something i mean the thing is my contention is that obviously it has to be quite a tasteful approach because you mm-hmm. can it's very it's such a sensitive thing that it's very easy to go the other way and obituaries are kind of known for t- either being quite funny and witty or being quite profound depending on mm-hmm. on the individual what part does humor play in in your opinion on the way in which we deal with dying i think humor is very important because what humor does is it unites us in something because it, it's very difficult to um not to empathize. I think we can empathize with people in bereavement, but it's very difficult to exactly understand how somebody's feeling. And I think humor is just a way to kind of break the ice. Mm. And I agree with you entirely. Like it it needs to be approached very sensitively and it needs to be through an understanding of who that person was rather than humor just about the situation yeah, or right. about death in general. So the reason why the Terry Pratchett Memorial works so well is because it really engages with Terry Pratchett's humor. And you know Terry Pratchett would have loved it. And if you can think about that with a person you've lost and you're engaging in that situation, if you think, well, they would have loved it, then that might be the right way of judging whether yeah. it's you know hitting the right mark mm. or not. And I guess it would be for the family to discern as well you know mm-hmm. it, I mean obviously we're not talking about famous people just mm. ordinary people um, and it would be at the family's discretion whether they find that tasteful or, mm. or crass so I guess it's quite an interesting thing to, to but I think if, you, if you're telling stories about someone's life and the moments that they found <coughs> joyful and the moments that they enjoyed if you move from from that kind of from the person themselves yeah. I think that often that 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 doesn't get to the kind of crass yeah. section. Another thing that I that, that we spoke about is um, the the hologram. Somebody mentioned mm. the two pack hologram yes. and um, and the fact that we have this obsession with trying to bring people back in mm-hmm. some shape or form. And maybe culturally here mm-hmm. in the West, I don't know um, how other cultures would interpret it but we have this inability of of just letting go and even our, the language that we use he passed away fallen asleep um there's always something in that that just says we're quite scared of the end mm. i think that um when we were talking about that um it was we were introducing different ideas there as well it was about well what are the not only what are the ethics behind this but what are the financial qualities yeah. behind using someone's image to essentially make money from a concert and I think that's where things start getting a bit um, opaque because um, I don't think that it's problematic necessarily to not let go of someone as we were talking about before and to keep a relationship going but when you are effectively reanimating someone through technology for commodities for commodities sake I think then we have to start to question well what right do we have of our image after we die and is it the family's right to display that if they so choose or to make money off that person's image if they so choose and, th- and this this kind of segues very nicely into this idea of publishing the works of, of particular artists once they've died works mm-hmm. that they did not intend to ever have published mm-hmm. for instance you think of Pessoa you think of Kafka you think of all these famous writers mm-hmm. who their diaries and their, their musings were put out on display Emily Dickinson um, at, you know what to what extent should we go ahead and, and make something public that was written in a very private and almost sacred space 
Yeah, I think um, it's difficult because the loss of those things would be completely de detrimental to our generation and our understanding. And sometimes things that were written in private are often the things that perhaps can teach us the most right. about you know our lives, our our deaths, our existence. But is that us again thinking on that same selfish note? What can the dead? or that piece of work, or the person who is dying or who's old, do for the people that are in a more privileged position, a more powerful position, in the sense that we can take that, mm -hmm. and that now becomes our property, because they're not powerful enough to an extent to do anything about it. Sure, I mean, in the past, you could burn your letters, mm. you could, you know, get rid of them in some way, if you really were incredibly keen on nobody accessing them, there were ways of really making sure that there was no other copy. Nowadays, that becomes more challenging based on the fact that if you put something online, it's very difficult to make sure that it's completely eradicated. It's almost impossible. Yeah. So those questions of the power position of the dead or the dynamics of someone who's dead being under mm. the living become quite important ethically. So the question being, what ethics do dead people have? Mm. Not Not... Not what ethics do they have, but what um, what ethics do we put, you know, around the dead? Do agency, the dead have? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. If the dead do have agency, yeah. And I guess, what but again, that 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 this is the interesting is that that would be that would come uh, under the governance of the living. So the living, obviously, yeah. the dead have no physical say uh, mm -hmm. uh, in, in anything. So that it will be up for the living to to navigate and. But you, you have the choice to place certain conditions on in writing or in legal terms before you die. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so you, you transcend yeah. from the living to the dead. So you what move happens through if somebody it? dies quite ab abruptly and they don't have, like, so I don't have a will. Mm. And if I was to die tomorrow um, mm -hmm. in an accident of some sort, then what would happen to things that I've written? If I have a notebook in the bag and I have work that I'm, or on my laptop, there's a collection that I'm working on. And someone opens it and thinks, oh, we're going to put this out. I would have no no say in it. Yeah, I would recommend you you, you write a will. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it is important as early as possible for people to, to really think about what they want. And to also, uh, my colleague was saying the other day, put it in pencil maybe mm. as well. Because you might change your mind in a few years. So you can't predetermine from the age of 20 or 30 or even earlier what you might want to do in 40 or 50 years. It's not possible. Um, but if you, you know, to create something, to start creating an understanding at least among your family, even if it's not a formalized will, of what your wishes are, I think is really important to have those open and honest conversations so that perhaps you're. You know, if you have a wife, your wife, your partner, your kids, maybe have an understanding at least so they can judge, well, this is how, you know, they kind of wanted it. Yeah. But at the same time, we also have a responsibility to the family. So, you know, it, it, if you take the analogy of being selfish, it might also be somehow selfish to deprive of the family of those works and yeah. those things that, that you've done because you specifically didn't want them mm. and yet you've got a group of people who loved you who are perhaps going through something quite challenging and that those things might be comforting to them yeah and i, and I guess the ethical this uh, the ethical debate will be uh catalyzed by the idea of 
commodification mm. and if somebody's using this as a, to make money yes. with no real ethical interest in what it is or even a consideration mm-hmm. as into did this person actually want this to go out and there's a lot of private things that people write in private that writers will, will, will journal or diary and that ends up being sold for you know mm. 15 20 pounds after they've they've died and we think who is really who is really benefiting this and I, I feel it's quite invasive to, mm-hmm. to read work that was never intended for, for for the public. In some ways, though, that's it's it's always been happening, mm. and it's it's still it's still a question of um, of do we have the rights over those things when we die? Do we actually have those? Mm. And actually, that's a question that we possibly the two of us possibly can't answer. But I think it has to go on a case-by-case basis. Like, if someone... Um, I was reading recently Edward Duval's The Hair with the Amber Eyes, and he talks quite eloquently about his family history um, where they were escaping um, Vienna from the Nazis, and the only thing that was left behind was this collection of netsuke, right. which are small Japanese uh, button-like adornment objects. And he goes through the history, looking through the archives and finding all the traces of his family and putting together the story of their family history through these objects. Um, and he talks about his his mother um, going on this trip to um, Vienna, following on after the war, to f- her journey finding these objects and the fact that she actually wrote a novel about it. Mm. And he talks about the fact that this novel was full of... Um, very very visceral raw emotions based on her experiences of confronting a country that she hadn't visited since her very young childhood um or not very since her childhood and that she um comes back to it as an adult and feels this this sense of unease of being there and right. that this book he felt was unpublishable Okay. And that's sort of the link. Sorry, yeah. I took a quite large tangent there. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I fully, I fully understand. And it, it's just trying to, to work out what it is that you can put out, what is too much, and mm. what is what is fine. And I guess the human, like we've said before, that the human experience isn't exclusive to one particular person. And there are things within uh, our lives that other people will be able to create and, and find comfort and solace from. Yeah, I think. Um thinking back on it now with the, with that comment in mind about the the i think the rawness is a question you know if you are trying to evaluate if someone is trying to evaluate whether something can be public or not if you read it and you feel like it's really raw emotions very visceral someone writing perhaps on the de- on their deathbed or perhaps writing about their experience of dying in a very raw way that possibly is is not not publishable it's yeah. possibly n- meant for not publishing however if someone is writing in quite a poetic way then perhaps there are other things to p- be to be in consideration such for them. as Pessoa's book of disquiet yeah, yeah, yeah exactly um at what and is there anything else that you're working on at the moment that you're that you want to tell people about any exhibitions any projects upcoming yeah, I'm I'm always on the lookout for new projects. So mm. if anyone if anyone has any ideas, feel free to let me know. Uh at the moment, as I said, the Material Legacies exhibition is still running, so I haven't quite got a new project in the in the 
in the mind yet, but we are considering what to do with those works afterwards, mm. because that's another question. Once you work with people for a period of two years and you produce these very important experiences that are engaging with who the people they've lost were and are still today, um, then the question of what to do with them becomes incredibly important. And one of the works is a collection of, you know, hundreds of mushrooms, uh, felt mushrooms and things going up the wall with a kind of sound installation with um, actually, again, it's something to link into what we were talking about before. It, it's using a dictaphone that they used to have together at school where she used to leave her messages. And so there are these kind of quite young teenage messages from this girl who she last um, stored in this dictaphone and what we wanted to do with that was build this sound insulation which would um, incorporate the atmosphere of that school that they were going to including things like the flushing toilet that they used to sit and chat in the loos together and the smell of the forest that they used to go out and have cigarettes in the forest together but yeah we, we, we did discuss the kind of ethics of bring those sounds the, the actual voice of that person mm. into the space of a gallery and essentially making it public yeah. and for Sam who worked with me on the on the experience for her loss of that person she felt like that was really important to have her voice there right. because that was honoring who she was and it, it showed um, it allowed people to experience not the whole story but like to get a little bit of a a insight yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. um well, this, this has been a really fantastic and very fascinating uh discussion and i hope that more people are able to talk about these kind of things and that these they get it gets the platform that it mm -hmm. deserves and you know, young people are encouraged to to give their thoughts and lucubrations on on what it is that i guess troubles them and, and worries them um about dying and losing people that they love so yeah thanks for coming along and thanks for inviting me it's been a great discussion and yeah brilliant let's get the conversation started absolutely <laughs> thank you